morning. It's good to see everybody. We are in Gen- uh, Genesis. We're in Exodus chapter 3. I almost forgot where we were at. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15 this morning. Uh, one of the most famous passages, one of the most famous encounters uh, that's ever recorded of anyone encountering the presence of God. And uh, it's, a, it's such a rich uh, text, so unbelievable what happens here, and so much application for us, for our everyday lives. And so let me read the text for us, and then we'll study it. Uh, Exodus, I keep wanting to say Genesis. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, to see, I'm sorry, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said to him, here I am. Then he said, do not fear can't read this morning. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their afflictions and their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I did that, but I couldn't say, come near. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people to the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them that, God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Go, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout the generations. What a mouthful. This text is one of the most famous passages of anybody ever encountering the presence of God. And and as we've seen, chapter 1 and 2 is really preparing for salvation, for rescue, for redemption. We looked last week, really chapter 2 is all about Moses' preparation. And Moses... Was, is in the wilderness as we begin this text, and it looks like Moses has been completely forsaken and forgotten. But what's amazing about this is that in the wilderness is exactly where God shows up to Moses, and he shows up in power, and he shows up in glory, and what he does in the wilderness in doing that 
is announces his plan to redeem his people. And then he promises something. He promises his presence with Moses and with, with the people. This is ultimately the entire point of the Bible. The presence of God among his people. And so those are the things that we're going to see this morning, that, God, that Moses has been forgotten or seemingly forgotten, that God enters into his life and announces his plan to redeem and to rescue and ultimately promises his presence. And this text is so rich, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this text. So hopefully we'll get the, the high points and the Spirit will unlock and, uh, and crack this text open to us this morning. Let's see Moses seemingly forgotten here. The, verse, the first verse, verse 1, Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses was keeping the flock. The word is continuous there. Moses was, was just going about his ordinary business. This is now his new day job. This is what he does. He keeps sheep. But he's not just keeping any sheep. He's keeping his father-in-law's sheep. And, and so Moses is in relative obscurity at this point. And the text goes further than that. He's not just keeping sheep, doing the ordinary menial task of keeping sheep, and not just keeping anybody's sheep, keeping his father-in-law's sheep. Moses is on the west side of the wilderness. The, the area that he's in, Midian, is the Sinai Peninsula. It, it's, it's east of Egypt and it's across the Red Sea. It's, it's a barren wilderness. But what Moses says here was, I was in the west of the wilderness. In other words, and that word literally means, I was on the backside of the wilderness. Another way of saying that would be, I'm on, I was on the backside of the moon. I was forgotten. I was gone. I was in the middle of nowhere. And how does he emphasize that even more? He says he was at the mountain of Horeb. He doesn't say another word for that, another way it's used in the Bible is Sinai. He says Horeb. Horeb means wasteland. Moses is, is doing the menial, obscure, nothing task of keeping sheep in the middle of nowhere on the backside of the moon in a barren wasteland. It looks like Moses has been forgotten and forsaken. It looks like Moses is off the radar, off the grid, and he's just been abandoned. But it's actually in the wilderness, in the barren wasteland, in the middle of nowhere, in the obscure, everyday, menial task of keeping sheep that God knows exactly where Moses is, knows exactly Moses' name, and meets Moses exactly where he's at. What good news as we start this text. God knows your name, knows your context, knows exactly where you're at, and meets us in the ordinary. What do we often do? We think the ordinary is things we have to flee from. The, the ordinary is not where God meets us, but the ordinary is exactly where God meets Moses. He hasn't forgotten Moses, and he hasn't forgotten you. He knows your story. He knows your suffering. He knows your affliction. He knows your your wrestling match that you're going through. He knows the questions that you have. He knows everything about you. And what he says here, what he does here with Moses is he meets him right in the middle of that context. We don't like the wilderness. We said it last week. We want to avoid the wilderness and the ordinary and the obscure. We want to avoid that like the plague. But that is where God works. That's where God meets us. And he uses the ordinary and he uses the wilderness. 
And he uses the wasteland to shape us and to meet us. And that's what he's doing here in Moses' life. Now, though Moses seems forgotten and forsaken, what's amazing here is that God meets him. He enters into his life. And the text tells us that he enters into his life really in two ways. It's seemingly one way. It says that he appears in a burning bush, though the bush does not burn up, though the bush is not consumed. And so what we see in the text is that he really appears in two ways. First, in a blazing fire. But secondly, in a blazing fire that does not consume. Verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, or a blazing fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, here I am. He appeared to him in a blazing fire, but a blazing fire that does not consume. Let's, let's look at those two halves. First, the blazing fire. What, every time fire is referenced in the Old Testament, really even into the New Testament, but specifically in the Old Testament, every time fire is referenced in the Old Testament, it represents God's holy presence. It's mentioned three times here in the text, a blazing fire out of the midst of the bush, the bush that was burning yet not consumed, the bush that was not burned. Fire is always one of the, the tools or the, the means or the ways that God represents himself or appears in the Old Testament repeatedly. He, in, in, in Genesis chapter 15, he appears to Abraham in a smoking fire pot. In this text, he appears in a blazing fire in a bush. How is he going to lead Israel out of the wilderness and through the wilderness and into the promised land? By a pillar of fire. How is he going to show up in Exodus 19 on the mountain of God, Horeb, later called Sinai? How is he going to show up? He's going to show up in a devouring fire. He's going to descend in fire. Fire regularly represents the presence of God, the holy presence of God. In, in Exodus 24, 17, it says his glory is like a fire. Later, in the, at the end of Exodus, in chapter 40, it's going to say that his glory filled the temple like fire. So God's glory, God's holy presence is represented by fire. His holy presence, his infinite holy glory and presence is showing up in this moment, in this scene with Moses. He comes as a blazing fire. And what's interesting is this is a perfect analogy, a perfect metaphor, a perfect way for us to understand the nature of who God is. Because just like fire, it's mesmerizing, but it's dangerous. Just like fire, we tell our kids, don't play with fire. Don't touch it. Why? Because they're attracted to it, but if they touch it, it will consume like fire, you can't touch fire and change it. It touches you and changes you. This is the perfect analogy for, for the nature and character of God. And God shows up in blazing fire. His holy presence is on display here. 
His infinite holy presence. And what he does, what we see, is is echoed in the words. In verse 5, he says to Moses, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Don't come near. This is an odd thing. Moses, Moses, but don't come near. What's going on here? God is reiterating to Moses. I'm no ordinary person. I'm not someone that you mess with. I'm not some just ordinary schmo that comes along that's just your friend and and, an ally that, that you can just sort of talk to any old way. I am the infinite, holy God. And I'm here. And I'm in your presence. And he tells him to take off his sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Now the place is secondary to the person. The place is made holy because of the person, the being, God, who is there. And that's what he's announcing to Moses here. He's he's saying to Moses, just like he'll say to the Israelites in, in Exodus chapter 19, he says to Moses, tell them, do not touch the mountain. If they touch the mountain, they will die. The mountain on which God descends, the mountain on which God appears, the fire that comes down. He tells the Israelites, don't touch it lest you die. So in other words, his holy presence is not something we can just rush into. It's not something we should treat flippantly. we We should see it like fire. It's not something. It's beautiful, but it's not something that we change, that we manipulate, that we can enter into without being affected. He's announcing his infinite holy presence presence here in this text. And then he says in verse 6, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, this is not a God of Moses' own making. We'll see this echoed again when he says, I am. We don't get to determine who he is. He determines who he is. And he also determines who we are. We don't just get to make this up, and this is not what Moses is making sure. You understand, I'm not making this up. This is the God that that was and is and always will be. This is the infinite God that created all things. This is the holy God that I encountered in this moment, in this blazing flame. So why a blazing flame? Because God is infinitely holy. But here's the most amazing and spectacular thing about this. The blazing flame, the infinite holiness of God. He appears in a blazing flame, but it's a blazing flame that does not consume. Why a blazing flame that does not consume? He is an infinite holy God, but he is also an intimately gracious God. That's drawing near to Moses and inviting Moses in. And this is astounding what we see here. Moses, it says, he, he sees this and he's, he's confused, he's conflicted. And it says he turns aside, which means to deviate. He deviates from his ordinary every day. He deviates from it. Because what he sees is wonderful and beautiful and terrifying all at the same time. But he sees something that's a phenomenon, it's miraculous, it's supernatural, it's a blazing flame, but the bush, the green bush is not burnt up, there's no smoke, there's no, the leaves are still there, the, the, it's, not, it's not crushed to ashes, this is extraordinary to Moses. Literally, this week I'm driving home on 13, and you know, as you drive around Baldwin County, there's just 
still tons of trees and debris left over from the hurricane. And, and I was driving past a farm, and there was a massive stump that they were burning. And I was sitting there thinking, as I'm studying this text, you know, okay, I see that. I'm as far from maybe the back wall to me here, and I see the fire, and I see the stump, and I'm what, would, what, what attracted Moses? I mean, it's a fire, it's a stump, it's, I see it, it's, it's happening, but what was it? But of course, what I'm looking at is a tree that's on fire, and there's nothing but black smoke coming from it. And it's, it's being consumed. And it looks normal to us. But what Moses sees is a green bush that is not consumed. No smoke. And the bush is, and the leaves are still there. So what he sees is extraordinary. And he turns aside and he looks at it. And the text says when God sees and turns aside, this is when God calls out and speaks out. What's going on here? He's a blazing flame that does not consume. In Egyptian culture... They worshipped, one of their chief gods was the god Ray, which was the sun god or the god of the fiery island, which is, I guess, how you would imagine if you first saw the sun and there's a fiery island in the sky. So they, they worshipped the god Ray, and Ray was a consuming fire. In other words, every time they associated Ray, the, the attitude, the disposition of Ray was one who crushes to ashes who destroys. Every time they talked about flames and fire in Egyptian culture, it was associated with death, disease, poison, and destruction. And when they talked about Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a godlike status, and, and he also represented the sun god, Ray. And, and every time they talked about Pharaoh, he was one that brought things to ashes. That's not what we have here in this text. We have an infinite holy God who has every right to bring things to ashes, who has every authority and every ounce of power to do it, but he doesn't. He's a God who is gracious and kind, steadfast in mercy, compassionate and benevolent. This is exactly how He's described in Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord, the Lord, the God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yes, he is absolutely a consuming fire. In fact, he's referenced as a consuming fire in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, and Hebrews. He's described as a consuming fire. And yet Moses is standing in his presence and he's not consumed. What is going on here? How is it possible that Moses, a sinful man, can stand in the presence of a holy God and not be swallowed up by his holiness? Because God is gracious and kind. He's infinite holy, but he's also gracious and kind. Look at what he does. He, he calls to Moses. He says, Moses, Moses. Now, when you see that, when that double name call is used in the, in the scriptures, especially when it's coming from God, it's a term of endearment. It's an affectionate, personal term of endearment. Think about if, you, if you've seen, if you haven't seen a friend for a long time, long lost friend, and that friend walks in the room, you're oh, you might say friend. You might say their name. Oh, Joe, Joe. I would never say Joe's name twice, but Joe, Joe. Oh, I miss you. I've missed you so much. It's a term of endearment. 
Think about our children. What do they say? They say, daddy, daddy. It's a term of affection. My, my grandmother, she used to always call me son. Son, oh, son, I'm so proud of you. Or if something, I've expressed something of hurt or pain or loss, she'd say, oh, son, I hurt for you. I'm so sorry. What's she doing in that moment? She's expressing a term of endearment. That's what God is doing in this moment. He's calling Moses' name, Moses, Moses, my son, my child, my creation, mine. He calls out to him in affection and love. It's a way of signaling that the one that's calling is a friend, not a foe. And that's what he's doing here. And then, he, he, and this is how God calls to Abraham, calls to Jacob. Go back and look in Genesis. This is how he calls repeatedly. Abraham, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob. He's calling with a term of endearment. But then, and this is the most amazing thing, God doesn't swallow up Moses in his holiness. He doesn't swallow up Moses in his holiness. Instead, he makes a way for Moses to enter in to his holiness. He makes a way to enter in. How is that? How is it that sinful man can enter into the presence of an infinite, holy, blazing fire and furnace of God? We have to remember who's speaking in this text. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Who is the angel of the Lord? Anytime you see this reference, it's referenced 67 different times in the Old Testament. It can be quite confusing because sometimes it seems, and then this text is an example of it, it seems that the angel of the Lord is God himself speaking. And then other times it it seems that the angel of the Lord is distinct from God. It's a distinct entity. He's a distinct being from God. So which is it? Is it, is it God or is it a distinct entity and being from God? The answer is yes. Absolutely it is. It's both and. And that's what's so amazing about this. Because when we see in the Old Testament that the angel of the Lord appearing, the angel always reveals God, always speaks as God, always, always intercedes on behalf of people protecting them. On behalf of God, guarding the people of God, but always, always the angel of the Lord is the means by which an infinite holy God can enter into the presence of sinful people. How is it that the the sinful man, how is it that Moses can enter into the holiness of God and not be swallowed up it's because of the intervening work the mediating work of the angel of the Lord so for this reason because of all these things that the angel Lord does and and because of all the ways that he appears and it it he appears as God and he appears also sometimes distinct from God scholars and historians throughout history have have pointed to this is likely the second person of the Trinity Jesus the son prior to taking on flesh and blood in the New Testament. 
Everything the angel of the Lord does in the Old Testament always foreshadows and points towards the work of Jesus in the New Testament. How is it that Moses can enter into the holy presence of God and not be consumed? It's because of the intervening work of the angel of the Lord. How is it that you and I have any hope of entering into the blazing furnace of God and not being consumed. It's because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Without Jesus, we will be swallowed up by God's holiness. Without Jesus, we will be consumed. That's what's so amazing is that over and over throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as a consuming fire, but He does not consume in this, in this text. Fire always represents the holiness of God. And interestingly enough, and throughout the Old Testament, trees and shrubs represent life, but they also represent man. Think of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but instead delights on the laws of the Lord. He is like a tree planted next to living waters. How is it that we green shrubs can be in the holy presence of God and not consumed only if he makes a way only if he makes a way and he has made a way and that's the good news of the gospel he made a way in Jesus without Jesus we will be swallowed up by God's holiness and so the question this morning is Jesus your hope is Jesus your mediator your intervening one, the one who, who, who protects you from the holy, blazing fire of God? Is he the one that you plead before God? God, you should smite me and consume me and crush me and destroy me. You should do that. Is that your confession? But because of Jesus, I, that's my only hope. He is my hope. He's my covering. He's my protection. His righteousness is, is my righteousness. I have nothing to bring. He has everything to bring. Is he your intervening, mediating protector from the holiness of God? What's amazing is that God is infinitely holy and he provides the way for us to enter into his presence. That's what he's doing here with Moses. Now, at this point, the, the text transitions. He enters into Moses' life in this blazing flame that does not consume, and then everything transitions in the text. He's, a, he's showing, he's appearing before Moses, and his holy presence is being displayed here. But then the text turns to God's plan to rescue his people. In other words, it turns from, Moses, I've done this in your life, to, Moses, you're going to participate with me as I do this in the life of Israel. What I've just done in your life, I'm going to do in Israel's life. And that's where we turn and we see his announcement of his plan in verse 7 and 8. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of, Egyptian, of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of all of those people, and I won't repeat. What's being said here? This is extraordinarily personal and affectionate language for the people of Israel. 
God is announcing his extraordinary. Yes, he's an in, infinite God, but he's also intimately personal. And he, he's coming near to his people to rescue his people. It says that he has seen the affliction of my people. What's fascinating is, is, is previously we saw Moses talk about his people. His people twice in chapter 2. And now what God says is, is my people. There's a distinct difference between those two things. Moses is a Hebrew. In other words, he's a participant. But God is a possessor. They are his. They belong to him. He is their creator and their sustainer. They are his people. And what he says here in the text is that he sees, he hears, he knows their afflictions and their cries and their groaning and their affliction and their suffering. He sees, which means, in the language here, it means to see completely. That there is nothing in his view that's keeping him from seeing everything. He sees everything. That he hears, meaning he, he completely hears, but he, it means he fully understands, but then the language of knows. This is so unbelievable. He knows, it means he feels. He feels what he's announcing here and what he's about to do overflows from his heart for these people. It's not just intellectual or academic knowledge. I am aware of their suffering and I'm going to do something about it. No, I, they are my people. They are my children. I am coming to the rescue of my people, of my children. He feels their pain and their suffering and it's amplified by what he says he's going to do. He says, I have come down to deliver them. To deliver them. It's the Hebrew word, nitzah, and it, it means to snatch them up. These are his children. And he's going to snatch them out of the hands of the enemy. Let me show you a picture here. This is right after Addie Wynn started to learn to run. Not walk, but run. And she was running on our back porch. It was just concrete. And it's not the first time she's fallen. And it's not the last time for sure. But this particular time, she falls. And she doesn't do what she normally does. Arms out, catches herself. She goes headlong and forehead first into the concrete. I'm standing on the concrete that she fell. She's two feet from me. And when I say I felt her fall, I mean it in two different ways. One, I literally physically felt the concrete. I felt her head bounce on the concrete in my feet and in my body physically. But I also felt her fall. It moved me. Now, it's not the first time she's fallen, it's not the last time she's fallen, but this particular time, it alarmed me, it scared me, it moved me. And before she could cry, I was scooping her up, snatching her up. And I didn't just snatch her up and start saying, baby, I got you, you're mine, daddy I has you, I'm here with you. I took her instantly inside. I moved her from the spot she was to a better location. 
Now listen, don't get me wrong. This is, God, this is not God saying, I suddenly realize their pain. He has, the same person that he is here is who he has been and who he was. He told us in Genesis chapter, uh, in Genesis 15, he told us that they would be there for 400 years. This is all part of his plan. But what he's saying here in this moment is that I am coming to rescue my children and I will snatch them up. And he says, I'm taking them out of Egypt and I'm taking them to a better place. Everything God is doing here is out of the overflow of the fatherly affection for his people. He loves them. And guess what? This is true of you. He loves you. He wants you. And he wants to snatch you up and hold you close to his chest. This is our heavenly Father, God. This is so extraordinary what he's doing here, what he's announcing here. We have a heavenly Father who delights to do us good, who longs to snatch us up. If you don't know him, you need to know this about him. He loves you and wants you and wants to snatch you up. If you know him through a relationship with Jesus, you need to be reminded this morning that he loves you and longs to snatch you up. You are not alone in the wilderness, in the wasteland, forgotten, Moses or Israel or you or I. Your heavenly Father knows your name, wants you, and loves and longs out of an overflow of his affection for you to come and rescue you. It brings him joy. This is unbelievable. And his rescue is comprehensive. He doesn't just scoop them up from Egypt and say, okay, you're on your own, figure it out. He scoops them up and takes them to the land of the ites, all of those people. He takes them to the promised land. He takes them to the beautiful paradise. And that's what he does for you and I. This is not home. He scoops us up and rescues our hearts, but we are not home yet. He is taking us to a better place, the place of his presence. Now, how will he rescue? He's going to rescue through a deliverer, and this is one of the most comical parts of the text to me. Everything is building to this point. I have heard their cries. I've seen their issues and their afflictions. I know they're, I'm coming to deliver them. And then verse 9 and 10. And now behold, he repeats the same thing. The cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, I'm going to send you, Moses. <laughs> that is amazing. I have heard their cry. I know their pain and their affliction. Come on, let's go, Moses. We're going to go do this. What's he doing here? He's inviting Moses into the joy of being part of his deliverance and his rescue. God's deliverer, in this case Moses, is the means through which God's presence will be experienced. He's prepared Moses to be that deliverer. But ultimately, Moses is pointing us to a greater deliverer, a true and better deliverer, Jesus. It's through his presence. It's through his coming. It's through his sending that you and I are enabled to experience the presence of God. And Moses responds exactly how you and I might respond. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
You heard their cry. They're your people. Who am I? Who am I to go against Pharaoh and all the armies of Egypt? Who am I? Moses balks. Moses responds almost exactly like you and I might respond. That's an impossible task. Who who am I to do this? And his here am I turns into who me? Are you talking to me? And now here's the thing, and this leads us to the last point and the, and the amazing point and really the point of the Bible, the point of the gospel, and the point that is being made here in this text. Moses is asking the wrong question. He's asking, who me? Who am I? He's asking entirely the wrong question. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters who is with you. It doesn't matter who you are, your skills, gifts, abilities. It doesn't matter whether you were in the wilderness wanderland or if you were the prince of Egypt. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters who is with you. He says in verse 12, but, he, but God says, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this Mountain. It's not about who Moses is, it's about who is with Moses. He didn't choose Moses because of all of his gifts, all of his abilities, all of his great powers and of wisdom and intellect. Do you remember, Moses was a three-month-old child with nothing to offer when God rescued him. Moses is a failed leader who murdered somebody in the wilderness, keeping somebody else's sheep on the backside of the moon, in a barren wasteland. And at this point in his life, he's at what some might call the last days. He's an 80-year-old man. In the most obscure place. Moses, it's not about you. It's not about your power, your might, or your strength. It's about mine. That's what God is saying here. Moses instantly does what you and I always do. We always default to ourselves and think, what do, what do I need to do to solve this? What, 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 how do I need to step in? How, what muscle and might do I have? What strength, what wisdom, what intellect, what, what possessions? What, how can I buy my way out of this? How can I solve this problem? And that's not what God desires here. Moses, I have a plan to deliver my people and it will display my glory and my power and my majesty and my holiness and my intimate personal care for them. How is it going to do that? Because I'm going to do it through you, Moses. You weak, obscure, failed leader in the middle of nowhere. That's going to display my glory to the greatest effect here. So it's not about who Moses is, it's about who is with Moses. And Moses asks the question, the next logical question, it's a question that you and I might ask, it's the question that Moses asked. Okay, well, who exactly is with me? Who are you? He, he asked the question of, of, of human history. Who is God and what is God like? That's what he's asking here. Who should I say sent me, if they ask? That's what he says in verse 13, when if I come to the people of Israel and, they, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God gives him two answers, verse 14, verse 15. 
two answers. And the two answers that he gives Moses about who he is, is exactly the way he has already appeared to Moses. The first answer is this. I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Here's the thing. When this, this word, this name, this, this title, I am, it's four Hebrew consonants. Y-H-W-H. It's the name Yahweh. The vowels aren't provided to us because the Hebrew people thought the word, the name, the title was so sacred that it couldn't be pronounced. It's used 67, 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It, it's, it was considered to be so sacred and so other that they took the, the vowels and they changed the vowels so that you would not actually pronounce it Yahweh, you'd pronounce it some other name, Adonai. It's why in your, in your Bibles you will see Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D sometimes. It's Adonai, because they didn't want to pronounce Yahweh, because it's such an other name. It's such an other person, other being. God is so other, he's holy, he's infinitely other than us. But what does it mean? Anytime a name is given, it describes the person. God's not giving necessarily a name here. He's giving his character and his nature here. It's pronounced Yahweh. They, they, they would call God Yahweh. We would refer to God as Yahweh, but it's a verb. And it means to be. What is God saying here? Tell them the one who never had a beginning and will never have an end sent you. I am, I was, and I will forever be. That's how he answers him. Tell them the one that needs nothing, that created everything, that knows all things, that sustains every life, everything that exists. Tell them, I, that's who sent you. Tell them the creator of creation, the author of all things, the, the authority over all authorities, the ruler over all rulers, the infinite, holy God sent you. I am. I am. In other words, tell them the infinitely holy God has sent you. But he says another name. He says in verse 15, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. In other words, yes, God is an infinitely holy God, but he is also an intimately personal God that delights to enter into relationship. That delights to be known. How do we know? He entered into relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and now with Moses so that he could enter into relationship with Israel, so that through Israel he could send a redeemer to enter into relationship with you and me. He is an infinitely other, infinitely sacred, infinitely holy God, but he is intimately personal and delights to be known to be in relationship with you and I. So what does God say to Moses here? Tell them, I'm the infinitely holy God 
who is intimately personal. I've come down, I've entered into the wasteland to rescue them so that they will know my active presence in their lives. I'm the infinite holy God who has come down to be intimately personal, to enter into their lives so that they would know my active presence daily in their lives. This is not just the God of the Old Testament. This is also the God of the New Testament. And the greatest evidence of God's coming down in order to enter in to active presence with you and I is Jesus. Jesus came down. The greatest evidence that that God has come near to us is his birth. The greatest evidence of, of his power is his resurrection from the grave. His, the greatest evidence of his intimate desire to be known by you is his death on the cross. How is it that you and I can enter into the holy presence of God? It's only by the mediating power. It's only if God makes a way, and God has made a way, to enter in to intimate relationship with you and I. Now what's the right here, right now reality of what this means? In Colossians, Paul goes on and on about the nature of who Jesus is. In chapter 1, he talks about Jesus who is the, is the exact image of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he's the imprint, the exact imprint of God's nature. When you see Jesus, you have seen God. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1.19 and Colossians 2.9 Colossians 2.10 that all of the fullness of the holiness and the greatness and the grace of God dwells in Jesus. And then he makes this profound, unbelievable statement in 2.9 and 2.10. And he if you are in Christ, dwells in you. The infinite, holy, other God who is intimately personal, who has all power, who existed before, during, and always after, eternally infinite in every direction, dwells in Jesus, and he dwells in me through Christ How does that change your prayers? How does that change your parenting? How does that change your 3 a.m. diaper changes? How does that change tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. and the conflict in your boss with your boss? How does that change the conflict in your marriage? How does that change the suffering and affliction that you go through or will go through? The infinite holy God is with you, dwelling, delighting to scoop you up, snatch you up, rescue you, provide for you, love you, lavish on you his grace and his love. That changes everything. It changes everything. We could go on for months in this text. We're going to end there. Let me ask this question as family discussion. With what we've seen, just a little bit that we've seen here in this text, what do you learn about the character and the nature of God and his desire for relationship with you? 
Talk about that with your kids, with your family, with your friends. Let's talk this week about this. Let's meditate on this text and the truths of this text, that God is a blazing fire, but he's a blazing fire that does not consume, that he's an infinite holy God, but he wants to come intimately near into your life, that he's the God of all power and all authority, and he dwells with you, in you, and through you in every circumstance of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for revealing, for pulling back the curtain just a little bit on who you are, the nature and the character of who you are. We could spend months in this text and never do it justice. Holy Spirit, (laughs) you, you teach us in Jeremiah that your word, that God's word is like a fire and like a hammer and it breaks rocks to pieces. I pray that you would take this word, that you have cracked it open, that you continue to crack it open for us this week and that you pour it out on us and you break and crack our hard hearts. May this not just be an intellectual text, academic in theology. May we feel this text. Know this text. That you're an infinite God come intimately near, longing and loving to enter into relationship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.